Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Truth to Power. My name is Justin Mogg. I'm a volunteer here at the station. And what we do on Truth to Power each week is bring you community conversations you won't hear anywhere else. And what we've been doing in the past few weeks is highlighting some of the community conversations we had at the Louisville Maker Fair that took place on L's campus back on September 10th, and Forward Radio was there. We were so thrilled to have a booth and to be out in the community meeting people and making new friends. And we also took some time to live broadcast from the fair and to wander around and speak to some of the many different kinds of makers in our community. And we want to share uh, part two of those conversations with you today here on Truth to Power. So with no further ado... We're going to take you back to September 10th at the University of Louisville and hear some more from the Louisville Maker Fair here on Truth to Power on Forward Radio. All right, we are going to keep roving the Louisville Maker Fair. I'm Justin Mogg with Brian Barnes doing some critical thinking about creativity today, I guess. Yeah, we're doing our best. This is a really good place for that. If you need uh, some good ideas, some new ideas, if you're getting stuck on something, come out here because one of the nice things about creative processes is that they really seem to be enhanced when we get around new ideas and new new machines. I mean, there's so much here that I've never seen before, and I think that my creativity is just going to be off the chart later. <laughs> all the new all the new information coming into my thinking. Come out and join us here. And Forward Radio is here with a booth in the second floor of the Student Activity Center uh, up in the ballroom, and you can come visit us and learn how to make media that matters. Uh, we are passing by the 3D printers, right? Uh, there are three 3D printers going in front of us here. These, have you ever done any of this 3D printing stuff? I've done a little bit of it. They were way bigger when I was doing it. It took about, um, yeah, it was maybe uh, five or six times the size of these. They definitely were their own uh, table sitting on the floor with the box on top. A lot of big electronics associated with it. Took a lot of power, pretty slow. Some of the stuff we'd make would take days. Oh, really? So this technology is evolving and moving in new directions like food, <laughs> as we mentioned, right? I wouldn't want to, want to have eaten any of the stuff that I made in the early days. <laughs> Maybe we could come around the backside here and talk to some of these makers uh, about their 3D printers. They're actually going right now. Can we talk to you about these 3D printers? Uh, I'm Justin Mogg. What's your name? I'm Eddie. Yeah. Eddie, who do you represent? Um, so I work for Boron Design, or I don't work for them. It's a volunteer organization. <laughs> uh, we're across the entire world, actually. Um, we have a open source project where we design 3D printers. We uh, release all the files for the free to the public. Oh. So you can be, buy all the parts, get all the manuals. Um, we have support systems on getting you set up and running. Wow. Um, so yeah, so we're just trying to make the best 3D printer that you can buy and build yourself. Buy and build yourself. But yeah. So not only are you building things in the printer, but you're building the printer. Exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> so we want a really high quality printer that can print like production worthy you know, parts out of ABS, which is a typically a more difficult uh, filament to use, different, difficult plastic. So. Yeah, we have people yeah. in Europe, in the US, all across Asia, etc. you know, almost every continent. I don't think we have Antarctica yet. <laughs> on the way soon, no doubt. Yeah. So this, this filament, this is what you're using in order to actually create the, the product? Exactly, yeah, so the filament is like a long string, and that string gets pushed into a extruder, which takes that solid plastic filament and melts it. And then the 3D printer knows exactly how much plastic to put in different areas in order to make whatever part you want. So if you want to make a little cube, if you want to make a fidget spinner, if you want to make a toy, like there's a dragon over here that's really cool that has a bunch of functional joints. That you can Saw that, yeah. yeah. 
So it just knows exactly how to do it, and it just after a few hours, it, your part comes off. So okay, and so and so it still takes a couple hours though. It's a yeah, slow yeah. process. It does take time. It really depends on your printer and how fast you're you're pushing it. Some printers go really fast, and other printers don't. So if I was at home and I was thinking about building a 3D printer, other than the things you've already mentioned, why would I build myself a 3D printer? Why not? Uh, anything around the house that you're like, man, I wish I could have this little hook, or I wish I could uh, arrange my like my wife, all of her makeup and stuff. I made a custom holder that could hold all the stuff she uses on a daily basis, so she can always keep it organized. Any little tool or knickknack or thing like that. If a bracket on a your dresser breaks, you can print a new one. Um, it's just really flexible. And the thing I'm most excited about is getting kids excited about this capability, because once you start thinking in the language of I can make anything then you start approaching problems and being like, oh, I can just print that. Let me design it in a software package and then have it you know, a few days later, a few hours later, depending on how big it is. Oh, that's really cool. And so it's really promoting uh, people taking responsibility for a little bit more of their consumption and that kind of thing? Yeah, and also just, again, once you have the tool set to start being creative, instead of you know spending thousands of dollars for someone else to make it, right. you can make it for 50 cents at home with the plastic. Um, and then if you can do a lot more iterations and yeah, just experiment with things without breaking the bank, essentially. So. Okay, right on. And so this uh, this filament is it expensive uh, to get? Um, so one of these rolls is about ten to twenty dollars for most of the most common parts. And how much stuff can you make out of a roll? I just have no idea. Yeah, so like a small part, uh, like a few inches in diameter, might be like fifty cents worth of filament. So it's it's fairly cost effective. And then what do you do? I mean, afterward, is there any way to turn this stuff back into filament or something, or is that just? So some people are really passionate about taking used prints and grinding them down, and then being able to re-extrude uh, plastic. So that is a little bit more complicated because there's a lot more things that are involved with reusing it. Um, but again, that's something that's really exciting to be able to keep reusing and you know not having a lot of plastic waste. Oh yeah, that's fantastic. So we're here with Voron Design, and again, your name was? Eddie. Eddie is here representing Voron Design. This is where we can 3D print our own parts to make our own 3D printer, and then also make more things with the printer. Exactly. Fantastic stuff. Where would I go online maybe to learn yeah, more absolutely. about Voron Design? Yeah, so we have a website, vorondesign.com, where it has a lot of links to the different printers we have, as well as all the files that you need to, to print and manufacture and, and build your own stuff. So all the documentation, manuals, all the parts you need. About how much does it cost for me to build one of these tabletop printers here? Yeah, so again, we're designing a little bit more premium 3D printers. Um, but the small ones here are about 500 to 650 for a kit. Oh, wow, that's less than I would expect. And then yeah. the bigger ones over there are around $1,400 for a kit. Wow. wow. And, is, and does the size dictate, like, the size of the thing you can make? Is that why you'd have it? Yeah. So the smaller ones, um, I'm trying to think, in, like, are about 4 inches cubed you can print. Okay. And we go all the way up to 14 inches cubed. So very large. You know, if you want to make a helmet for, like, a cosplay show or something like that, you could print the whole thing in one go with one of the bigger printers. Oh, it's super amazing. What an idea. Can I ask a little bit about how you would design an item that you wanted to be 3D, 3D printed? Like, I barely know how to use Photoshop. Uh, how That's 2D, right? Like, how would I go to the next level? Exactly. So there's a program called CAD, computer-aided design. Um, there's a variety of different tools. Something called Tinkercad is a little bit more user-friendly. Uh, but then there's something called Fusion 360, which is an, a, a free uh, thing you can download off the Internet. And then you basically say, I want to make a square, I want to make it a, a cube, that type of stuff. And you can add on different shapes. So it, it takes some getting used to, sure. but it's really exciting once you get, gain that skill set. And can you take pictures of things and have it software translate that into a 3D model? 
Yes. So in some theory. of the newer iPhones have a LiDAR scanner that you can create a STL, which is the file type that would get sliced into a 3D printer model. Wow. Um, however, there's a lot of cleanup that would need to be done with those. Okay. So there are certain levels of things. Like uh, you can take a picture of something and then bring it into CAD and then like trace around the edges and then create oh, yeah. a shape off of that. That's like the the most user-friendly way of doing it. Right, right. Yep. There was a, a group of people in uh, just a few hours away, uh, high school students that were taking architectural buildings, in the, like historic buildings, and then taking pictures of them, converting it to CAD, Whoa. and then having CAD models to preserve that you know, historical building. If it gets damaged in the future, we have the model t to you know say what it represented in the past. So that's oh, one cool. example of, of converting that and historic, uh, preserving stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. And I think our Louisville Public Library might have a 3D printer. Is that a thing? Yeah, I think a lot of 3D uh, printers, or libraries have 3D printers. Yeah. yeah, it's something, again, it's it takes some getting used to. There's different levels of how easy it is to just press print. Um, but yeah, I've heard a lot of, uh, also First Build here in Louisville has a bunch of 3D printers as well. So again, find a makerspace close by and they'll be able to help you get started. So. Yeah, we just talked to First Build. I want to let you talk to your many customers here. That's Vias and Victor, O-R-O-N design.com. Yes, that's correct. Thanks, Thanks for talking to us today. Have a good one. All right, we are live at the Louisville Maker Fair here at the University of Louisville campus, all around the clock tower, indoor and outdoor. We are talking to our indoor booths today in the big uh, ballroom here at UofL and we are here as Ford Radio representing Making Media That Matters. Uh, my name is Justin Mogg and Brian Barnes is with me here. Uh, so come on down. Uh, this is a really cool event that hasn't happened in three years, Brian. Yeah, and it's something that's really needed because we need a lot of creativity in order to drive the society forward to help us think about how to solve all these problems. This whole radio station is all about thinking about how to solve problems that are here, that are coming, how to th think outside the box, how to change the paradigm, how to address various inequalities, which involves culture change. This is a place for all of those ideas coming together. And what I'm seeing so often, I thought I was going to come here and see a bunch of crap for sale, man. I was like, oh, I'm bummed out. I bet it's going to be a bunch of crap no, for sale. No, it's not a flea market. It's not a bunch of crap for sale. It's a bunch of ideas for free, and people should come check it out. It's a great space, and people are really willing to share, and are trying to turn you on to doing what they're doing. It's, it's awesome. Come on down and join us. We mentioned libraries, and of course, the Louisville Free Public Library is here as well. They have a Maker Pavilion 101 station, and the kids are loving this one because I see all kinds of fun things. We're live on the radio. Can we ask you about the Louisville Free Public Library's Maker Station? Yes, yes. so I'm Liz with the Louisville Free Public Library. We've got two Makerspace locations in Louisville. One is at the Northeast Regional Library in Linden. The other is at the South Central Regional Library in Okolona. Nice. Is this where the 3D printers are? We were talking about 3D printers. <laughs> yes, we have 3D printers at both locations. Wow. Um, we've got sewing machines, uh, laser cutters, vinyl cutters, uh, button makers, which is what a lot of people are making yeah. today. Yeah. <laughs> Do people have to reserve time or do they just show up? We have information on our website at lfpl.org slash makerspace. It's by appointment or there are drop-in hours available. And are there staff available to help me with these things, or do I do it all on my own? We definitely do an intro 101 training every time people stop by for the first time. And then we put their name on file so they don't have to do that again the next time they come. And then we are there. Staff are there to help out. That is so cool. And we're a radio station, but we also know that you have podcast booths at the... 
Free Public Library, right? Yes. So the Northeast Regional location has an audio-visual studio. They have a recording booth. They have a green screen. They've got camera equipment. Oh, green screen. And we just want people in Louisville to have access to this stuff so you can get it at your library. So describe if people come out to the Louisville Maker Fair today what they can do at your booth. If you come to the Maker Fair today, we've got our cameo cutting machine where you can see how we cut bookmarks. You can color your own bookmark. And then we also have a button maker. It is low tech, but a lot of fun to make a button. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for being here. Uh, great talking to you, Liz. Yeah, thanks for talking to us. All right. Come on out to the Louisville Maker Fair and the Louisville Free Public Library. And uh, we are live broadcasting here on Forward Radio from the Louisville Maker Fair. We're at a collage table. It's called Making Collage Happen. When I first saw that sign, I thought it said Making College Happen. I thought that was definitely <laughs> a surprise twist on the creativity. How would I do it outside of the normal way? Well, we have ideas. But this is really cool. I have to say, I, I don't think much about collage. But when I look at the examples of the art they have here uh on the on the screen behind the table that's fantastic stuff i mean what a bunch of skill so if you come to the louisville maker fair you can make your own collage today there are cool little materials here i see different colored like almost origami paper kind of things but there's also magazines that's how i have always thought about collages cutting stuff out of magazines yeah for ransom notes <laughs> that is a form of collage that brian has a lot of experience with <laughs> the ransom note. we can't always help where we've been <laughs> So come on out and smell the glue sticks and make your own <laughs> ransom note. If you need one, you can use this paper. So that's helpful. <laughs> okay, we've been talking about robots and we haven't had a chance to interview anybody. Hey, we're live on the radio. Tell us about this booth here. Oh, hey, yeah. Um, so we're Red River Robotics. We're a university competition team. And uh, we actually um, have our drone here uh, that we've been using uh, for our previous competitions. Yeah. Can it go indoors? <laughs> um, so... We technically can fly it indoors, but definitely wouldn't fly it right now. Yeah. Actually, I know that the FAA is involved in regulating drones, right? And here at our UofL campus, we're in a flight path, so there are some restrictions to using these things, right? There are, yeah. So to legally fly a drone, you need to stick the Part 107 test, and all that's covered. Um, I think we're in a Class C uh, flight zone. And so right now where we're at, we can actually technically fly it. I think you have to contact uh, air control. Right. Um, yeah. Let them know that you're doing it, and then you get permission. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. How how high can this thing go? So regulation-wise, I think it can, it can go as high as 500 feet. Okay. Um, but we could definitely fly it like way higher if it weren't wow. for that. Yeah. And it's is it Bluetooth or like how does it connect to the controller? Yeah. So um, it's all radio controlled. Like uh, here I have a Trenis controller. Yeah. It's all basically radio controlled. It's radio, Brian. That's what it's all about here at Forward Radio. Right. <laughs> That's right. We appreciate you sharing this radio-controlled drone with us. So that thing looks pretty heavy. Is it heavy? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's fairly heavy. Um, about probably 10, 15 pounds, I think. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, is it is it fragile? Like, do you guys have to be careful with it, or can you move it around without a lot of care? Yeah, you can pretty much move around without care. Like, the only thing fragile like, on this thing would be the uh, propellers. And they're made of carbon fiber, and they, they can take a, a beating, probably. So, yeah. All right, cool. Cool. Thank you for talking with us. Do you, are you part of this as well? Okay. Could you tell us a little bit about why you like this stuff? Oh yeah. So my name is Felicity. I like to do much of the stuff mostly to get the electric, electronics, and uh, CS experience. I'm a mechanical engineer, so. Okay. So you're not as interested in flying them as you are in making them. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But yeah, just having that extra hands-on experience with uh, circuitry and programming is, is kind of what I'm in here for. Oh, that's cool. Is this part of your uh, degree program here? Uh, no, not at all. It's just extra stuff that you can do, extracurricular stuff, nice. if you want the hands-on experience. So yeah, I definitely took a, took that opportunity. Oh, that's excellent. And so, and so, are you 
Is this part of your degree program? Mm -mm. Yeah, I'm also doing this like just as a extra activity. Very cool. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And see, so you have you have an esports shirt on. Is this related to esports <laughs> in any way? No, I'm just uh, repping the uh, UL esports. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. If other people wanted to get involved in this, I mean, I guess if it's not part of your degree program, anybody could get involved. Is that right? Yeah, any students can get involved. Yep. Okay. You don't have to be part of the uh, spectacle engineering either to get involved. Like, if, if you wanted to join, you, you totally could. Uh, you don't really need any experience to get started. What's the club called? Or uh, we're Redbird Robotics. Redbird Robotics. All right, everybody, look for it. You guys, I guess, are you an RSO then? Okay. All right. Yeah. Look forward. And any student? Is it anybody at the university or just students? Yeah. Pretty much uh, any uh, any student at the university can join. Yeah. Great. Very cool. Very nice talking to you. Hi, John. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Check them out. Redbird Robotics here in the ballroom at the Student Activity Center. And oh my God, Brian, we are near a late entry to the Louisville yes. Maker Fair. I'm really excited to see this. What do we have? <laughs> we have a locally made do-it-yourself solar power generator and we have austin will here who is a is our solar power intern at u of l keyword right so good to finally meet you hey, austin, good justin to see you, justin. how we doing brian we're doing great how are you guys doing over here austin? not bad really good actually i'm excited to see how many people are coming through to learn how easy it is to hook up solar yourself has it been easy uh okay <laughs> Mildly easy. It's How about that? In the middle. Okay. Oh. Um, but yeah, very awesome to show the, uh, all the people coming through. People from, you know, wanting to switch their bikes over to solar. Another guy wants to convert his barn over. Uh, the guy that just left his tool shed in the back wants to power his uh, electric lawnmower and stuff like that. Be able to have a charging station that way. All right, so let me ask you a question about this. How is this solar, and we want to get to Aaron Koshinsky, who's the developer of this technology, who's standing here next to us, but just Austin, can you tell us really quick, how is this different from me going and buying solar panels and putting them on the roof of my house? I guess a conventional kind of thing. What's different about this? Uh, this is kind of more, I guess, if you want to advance it on your own, instead of just buying something, you know, cookie cutter, it's not going to be able to do everything that you want. It'll be able to do, you know, a couple things. With this system... Uh, and the Electrodocus, our battery management system. You can do something small for like a patio or if you want to hook up larger appliances in your house like water heaters, fridges, and things like that. So the versatility of our technology and equipment that we're working with is, I think, vast, vastly uh, above the rest. Okay, and this is something people can learn on their own as, a, as opposed to when I go and buy it from the solar place, they don't really teach me how to do a lot of you know solar exactly uh so my background is a, a sustainability major no mechanical no electrical we've got some textbooks and we've got some pamphlets that run with our battery management system read through it a couple of times and it starts to stick you just have to be willing to commit the time to it okay, okay well thank you for committing that time let me talk to aaron real quick over here aaron you're the developer of this technology can you tell us a little bit about what people should expect if they're coming out to the Maker Fair today to uh, to see do-it-yourself solar. Uh, just a, a pack that we've gotten running over the over the past couple of years, and a pack in progress. Uh, we have all the interfaces for rapid prototyping other developable products past our own that we've developed here today. As uh, Austin had just said, what's different about ours is when you buy something from. The, the supply chain, you don't get all the interfaceable or the hookups. It's like buying your iPhone. It doesn't have a Cat5 cable in the end of it or uh, a way to hook up solar to your iPhone. You can't even open it up. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah you, can't, you can't even open up your battery. And I saw a problem with that. That's a lot of planned obsolescence. It's admitting the technician. Well, I want to admit the technician in the same way, but not, not by because I'm going to throw this away because it's attached and I don't know how. I'm going to give you the option, but eliminate the amount of times you're going to need to get in there. And, and, and we have it now where we've eliminated three parts from solar that would need battery cables. And soon we're going to design our case out of polycarbonate or acrylic and cut it on CNC cut Lexan. So it's like how the old school people used to do stereos. And we're going to sub this computer screen in the face of it and emit the Electrodocus screen and run it off of that. Oh, that's interesting. So that's a little bit of a real upgrade. Uh, a lot of people listening have no idea what this word even is yes. that you and Austin used, Electrodocus. Can you tell us what the Electrodocus is? It is a Raspberry Pi computer purpose. It's built. a Pi? <laughs> no. It's, it's a computer. It's a, it's a cell phone motherboard uh, built in Cambridge, England. They, uh, it's, it's a purpose built for being a computer with the interfaces and USB and Cat5s. So, like, all the connections you have on your computer on the cell phone, inexpensive cell phone, motherboard. Well, it's built like a child, so it's real thin. This is purpose-built for a battery management system on thick circuit boards. But it is the Raspberry Pi circuit by design, so you can operate Linux operating systems and not Windows, not Mac. This one's open source. So you can write any coding or use coding to slide between parentheses in the coding to get it to execute things people have already done, even if you don't know how to code. That's what I'm going to be able to do. I'm mechanical, I'm electrical. Now I'm electrical. I taught myself how to do electrical doing this. But all that coding, I have to learn, and Austin learns it too. Okay, and, and is that something that's something you're looking for, is people to collaborate with? Is, is coding part of that? Yes. My, my good friend Myron Coke just started helping out, and he's proficient at this but we need people so he can spend as little time as possible and he can instruct them how to do it and learn and we need an educate a person that wants to learn eagerly from Myron and we had Austin's eagerly learning the mechanical and the electrical and components and the build for me to where I mean if anything happens to me the program has continuity and that's that's what we were after with this we wanted a, a program that continually works for people when people work for it okay so that they want to participate in it to get the solar at a cheaper cost for them to build it themselves and know that they're never going to have to call a technician okay. that's a big deal you, you call the power company when your power line goes out Right, right, definitely. Oh, this. It's like, well, I, I, do I want to pay somebody $1,000 to fix my stuff the way I do an appliance? Or do I want a little computer to tell me exactly what's wrong with it and plug and play that I know because I put it together? Right on. And so this is something that the idea is that people can do this on their own. If people come down to the Maker Fair today, they can meet you, they can meet Austin and talk about how to collaborate for next steps on this, right? Our next step is paint by color and number for electronics. It's green to green, step one to step one. You hook it up, put the bolt on, and the bolts are the same. So we're going to try and get everything the same, same components, same parts, and eliminate a lot of parts. Where I'm going to hand this to Brian, who's never done this, that he can look at it without instructions and put it together intuitively. Yeah, that's going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to that technology. All right, well, come down to the Maker Fair and see Aaron Kaczynski. Come and see Austin. Come and see this do-it-yourself solar. Yes, we're here live at the Louisville Maker Fair. Thanks so yeah, much, Aaron. Great seeing you again. I'm glad they were able to sneak in to the Louisville Maker Fair at the last minute. Uh, there's so many makers here of all different kinds. It is not just, you know, robots and rocketry like you might expect. Uh, as we've shown you, it's things like making collages or, my God, watch and clocks. I mean, talk about ancient technologies, right? I guess there are a couple of things to buy. I didn't have any idea. <laughs> oh, no, these aren't for sale. Oh, this guy's got analog clocks. This is so cool to see the inner workings 
of some of these very old clocks from the 1800s even. Uh, this is the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors. They've got a bluegrass chapter. Did you know that about the I, National Association? I didn't even know there was a National Association, but I am glad to, to know that someone's interested in preserving these fine mechanical systems. I mean, these are so interesting to me when I was young. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I used to t I used to destroy these things all the time, taking them apart, trying to figure them out. Occasionally, I'd get one back together okay, but they were never quite right. I'm, I'm a menace to these things, but I do find them very interesting. <laughs> well, once you lose one of these parts on the floor... Oh, yeah, don't, yeah, don't even start. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Who knows how many very expensive pieces of equipment were doomed over that one part Brian lost. Look at this one in the front. It's made out of paper mache, the, the, the cabinet for the clock, that is so uh, as part of the war effort. Some of these date back to the 20s, uh, 1800s. Uh, what a cool little display of watches and clocks from history. And you can come and see them working. This, this is precision stuff. You know they say they don't make things like they used to. That's certainly true with watches and clocks, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of people would say that there's, you know, I think those are positive innovations, but when you look at this kind of stuff, the artistry and right. um, the craftsmanship, yeah, well, and also just the precision to be able to, you know, to keep the time with these machines and know how to keep up with uh, maintaining them. I just think it's it, it's important that we that we keep this stuff going. There's a couple pendulums swinging at this booth. You want to tell us about this cl clock? Yeah, this is a wooden movement clock. Oh my gosh, about 1820. Made up in Connecticut. Oh yeah, it's two hundred years old. Wow. Still functioning, a little bit dirty, but the other, <laughs> this, this is the same movement taken apart. These are all the different pieces that go into a clock movement. But they they made these. Eli Terry started the, the, the wooden movement by by mass production. He was actually the first person to do mass production in the world. Wow. He had a contract in eighteen oh seven to produce four thousand of these in three years. Huh. What they call the Porter contract, and he completed the, the contract. Then he sold the company to Seth Thomas and Silas Holy. These are holy movements. They. Eli, Eli Terry saw the writing on the wall and went and started making pillar and scroll clocks, which were shelf clocks. Okay. And Eli Terry, or, or Seth Thomas and Silas Hoadley continued to make the tall case clocks for another 10 or 15 years. And then they split up. Seth Thomas, you, you probably heard of the Seth Thomas Clock Company. Sure. He, you know, that's still it's in existence in some semblance, but they were actually an American company up until the 1950s. Silas Hoadley retired in about oh, 1840 as a very rich man. But they made he made shelf clocks too, but but mostly wooden movements because they could make these much more inexpensive than a brass movement. Brass at that time was one expensive and two very difficult to get because there were no brass founders in this country. Yeah. By 1840, they were had brass foundries, so they started making this type of movement, ah. which basically put the wood movements out of out of business because they could make these as cheap as these. Plus, you didn't have the maintenance problems with these. They would, you know. The, the Americans actually took over the, the world clock market, but they couldn't send these over because you send these on ships for three months and they'd warp so badly because oh, no. of the salt air. <laughs> wouldn't work. But once they the started brass, making the brass could, movements, so okay. you'll see a lot of American clocks, many times with English cases, coming back to the U.S., you know, that have been imported over back 1850, 1860, 1870. Wow. They took over the market. We were, we were kind of like the Chinese. We were the low-cost producer. Yeah. You know, back in those days, back in the mid-1800s. Same way with the watch, watch business. And were these powered by springs, even the no. wooden? How did, how did they? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Yeah, spring technology was so bad that you, the, the French were making springs. There's a few spring clocks from those days, but they were very expensive. 
So they were literally doing weights. That's why they call them grandfather clocks. They, their proper name was Talkies Clock. They had a longer weight drop, so oh. they could run a week with the weights. These were weight-driven. You know, wow. this, this is weight-driven. See, this is from about 1840. You know, when they developed it, then they could put a spring in the same spot, and, and you, could, you could make a clock. This, this type of clock would be about 26 inches tall that would run 30 hours or run one day. Okay. And, but it was 26 inches to it, a little over two feet tall. You know, they could put this, this type of movement, or once they put springs in there, they could put a clock that big and it would run for a week. Wow. And, yeah. so, and so the size of the clock is dependent on the weights that are in when it. When they were using How long weights, you want to run it? it was dependent on the weight. Yeah, so okay. the, about the shortest you'd see would be about the two feet tall. Okay. And those would only usually run one day. Okay. They actually made these in, in an eight-day movement. These would run one day, you know, the wooden ones. But they did make some eight days with heavier weights that were compounded. But you don't see many of them around because the extra weight tore them up. Sure, yeah. of course. Yeah. So what blows my mind about this clock from 1820, thinking back to then, 1820, this is before railroad time even existed, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. everyone's perception of what noon was was totally different but you wanted to keep time in your own locale and make sure it's your noon is the same noon every day right <laughs> well th that's that's why a lot of the cities had like a tower clock yeah people could the set clock their clock in fact there's a joke going around that there was a jeweler in this one town that always set his clocks by the, the clock tower because the clock tower would strike you know so yeah. many he'd set his clock well, at one point after years of doing this, he talked to the guy that was running the clock tower. And the <laughs> clock, clock tower said, well, I'm setting my clock by yours. <laughs> so neither one of them had any idea time it was. <laughs> and yet we would go to such lengths to create a device to keep time, even though it was all relative. That's what blows my mind. <laughs> now, this, is, this is like a railroad grade watch. Yes. But they actually, you know, I think it was in the 1890s or so. Don't go quote me on that. But... They, they had a few accidents where people's watches were off and there were collisions trains among trains. Wow. Yeah. Well, wow. a guy named Ball up in Cleveland developed the Ball Standard. And he, he was a real entrepreneur. He had a, a business selling watches, but he created a system where the people, like the engineers and the conductors stuff that were running the trains, had to have their watches certified. Oh. And I think it was every three months or so, they had to send them in and make sure that they were running correctly so they would keep time. But and they had certain grades of watches like a, like a, this is a 19 jewel. They went up to 21, 23. Had to be adjusted positions and all and and, and uh, temperature had to be lever set. You can't on this type of watch. You can't pull the stem out right. and set it. You had to. There's a lever here that you have to unscrew the face oh, wow. to get to to set so you couldn't inadvertently you oh, know okay. un undo it or okay. change the time. Right, right. But, a lot of those are really but, easy. But he developed a great system where you had to have them certified so everybody had was on the same time. But but back in the old days, before they actually did that, you know, I've got a friend down in, in Chattanooga that collects railroad clocks and watches, and he's got a clock that this is railroad time and this is true time or Greenwich time. Oh, and wow. there's a little, you know, different cities. Really? Have, it might be in, in Cleveland, it might be eight o'clock, but in this town, it might be eight o three. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Because of the, you know the, the setting of the sun. Right. And they got rid of that with the time zones. Yes. And again, zone. for the same reason with the railroads and stuff. Fascinating. So great to talk to you. Come on out and check Thank out you. the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors booth here at the Louisville Maker Fair. If you hurt yourself on the clock, there's a first aid station right next door to help you out. Safety first at the Maker Fair. I mean, there is flame outside. I mean, there's glass blowing. There's and stairs. There's rockets. Yeah. There are rockets. That's right. <laughs>
So like we said, it's not just rockets and robots. There's things like the International Honor Quilt here at the Louisville Maker Fair. You want to tell us, what is the International Honor Quilt? I've never heard of it. Well, the International Honor Quilt is a collection of over 540 panels of individually quilted works that accompany Judy Chicago's The Dinner Table. So as The Dinner Table, which is a famous feminist artwork of 30, you know, profiling 39 women that were kind of overlooked in history. That's that's it. So the dinner table traveled to different states and we all wanted to participate more. I mean, there's so many more women that never made it into the book. So a call was made out as an international quilting bee so people women in particular and quilting groups and so forth could contribute to the overall mission to write women into the history books. Is it sort of like their own table then because of the shape of the panel? Is that the idea? Uh, yeah, just the idea the three-sided triangle being the dinner table, being a feminist symbol, the uterus to get kind of we get the radio listeners um, vagina on the radio <laughs> good so yeah women have those too so <laughs> sure. so they're so yeah that's the kind of our symbol to have a to have this iconic little image but created in these two by two foot panels that all two by two by two that okay. fit all together and the assemblage becomes one giant quilt for womankind. And is it dis- ultimately displayed somewhere? Well, um, it travels. We have 120 okay. pieces in New Mexico at a Judy Chicago show where it's the 50th anniversary of Woman House, which is an installation piece she did. Um, so we have 120 pieces exhibited there. 16 pieces are getting ready to go to Rhode Island to the Newport Art Museum. They'll be exhibited there October to January, something like that. And it's on campus. It's available to be seen if you contact us. It's in our uh, archives of BRC and Lutz Hall. And it's part of the university and uh, our... We use it for outreach, for academic study, for empowerment. I go out into the schools and do after-school programs, in-school programs, teach them about handwork, about feminism, and about being seen and having having your identity and being proud of it. Hmm? Very cool. So I see you're working on an Elmer Lucille Allen section of the quilt. You want to tell us about it? She's a queen. She's a goat. She was the first, she is, I should say, she's 91. She was the first black chemist to be hired at Brown Foreman. So she's like big there. And then after she retired, she went to the University of Louisville to get another degree in art. Uh, She does fibers and ceramic. And she still goes to school every Tuesday, Thursday. Like she's here. You know, now that you moved your notebook and I can see Elmer Lucille's face, I I do recognize her. Uh, I just didn't know the name. So this is... This is why we need these kinds of projects, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> she's an icon. And I believe she's on a mural in Smoketown? She has a whole building. A whole yeah. Building. yeah, yeah. The mural wraps the entire yes, building. Yes. yes, it's fabulous. Go to Smoketown. You'll see her there too. Very cool. These are the kinds of things you'll learn at the Louisville Maker Fair. Who knew? Check them out there in the back corner here of the Student Activity Center Ballroom, the International Honor Quilt. Uh, can people go online and learn more about it? Yes, they can. Okay. To Chicago, the International Honor Quilt. And and if you're on campus, you can access the database, and it will be out there in the public again soon. We're doing a technology cool. kind of transfer. 
All right. Great talking to you. Uh, check out this fun booth about the International Honor Quilt. And you can see many sections. There's Elmer Lucille is just one. Wow, there's a whole quilt for the Kentucky Shakers. Very cool. Uh, so, yeah, come and check out some of the quilting here at the Louisville Maker Fair as we rove around. Uh, the Speed School of Engineering is here. The American Society of Civil Engineers. You know, we were talking to some L students earlier who are not engineering students but into robotics but this is a society of student engineers hi what's your name can i talk to you guys hi this is shelby hogan with ASCE. and i'm jake schneider uh so you guys have been a, a a group on campus for a while right what's the mission we are really passionate um about bringing students into a easy transition from student life to professional life networking with the industry as well as taking their coursework and what they've learned and kind of getting some hands-on fun experiment experimental kind of um, activities with it like what what have you all done so, uh, we actually host a competition for elementary through high school students it's called oh. the balsa woodbridge competition uh open to all uh you feel free to reach out to speed school student council for, for more information uh, but that's held every march uh first saturday of march Okay, so it's coming up and people can get involved. Cool. So what kind of careers do you all get into as civil engineers? Well, uh, I would say a local employer is the, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Sure. They employ a lot of us for co-ops and, and beyond. Yeah. We really focus in a lot of different realms um, for the civil yeah. academic world. We really go into water resources, transportation, structural engineering. We get a really broad range in our um, undergrad education as civils and really like to branch out in the different um, paths that we go to. And here at U of L, it's civil and environmental engineering, right? They're kind of co-combined, so people who are studying like waterways and things like that may also end up in, in engineering, right? This is correct. A lot of our studies towards um, water are focused towards um, environmental protection, yeah. management, and uh, things like that, yes. Yeah, so important to our future. <laughs> we need more civil engineers who know what they're doing, for sure. I mean, there's some, been some horrible stories of, like, catastrophic failures of bridges and things like that. This is this is not just representing lack of expertise, but lack of investment in our public infrastructure, right? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Um, so thank you for this important work. <laughs> I don't, don't want our infrastructure collapsing, right, Brian? <laughs> no, absolutely not. We need, we need the civil engineers to continue to proliferate. Is there anything you would uh, say to young folks, younger folks than you, who might be coming through the university or thinking about uh, higher education? Is Why is engineering a good choice? Yeah. In your view, we're the ones making it happen. Problem solving starts on a small level and goes big, bigger than you can ever imagine. And it's really important to have um, well-rounded people with the skills to solve in-depth problems and communicate them to the world. Fantastic answer. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I would say don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to learn, even if that's just searching for opportunities. The Speed School of uh, Engineering, they really set you up with everything you need, whether that be civil, mechanical, computer. If you have a question, they're willing to work with you and help you find the answers. No, it sounds fantastic. It's, it sounds like you've had a really nice education experience there at speed yeah can i ask just one last question i, I noticed this super women engineers network tell me about i'm so glad to see women getting into engineering too tell us about that network and the research service yeah so this is actually a research program completely separate from ASEE. it's still in its early phases but it's backed by the, the university of louisville uh you know we're, we're looking for people uh particularly women with a background in stem just to hear their opportunities and hear what are the factors that are, are keeping them in stem what what yes. makes it worth their while 
So that's pretty much our mission. So what's the survey about? Oh, well, I mean, this is this is our first survey that we're, we're putting out there. We're asking students, college students, and professionals, just what, what are some of the things that have driven them towards STEM, okay. whether that be a great teacher. Uh, you know, we, we really do want to see how the education system plays into that. And also, you know, what, what makes their, their workplace enjoyable to come to uh, every day and just keep, keep doing their best work. That's so important. This needs to be a welcoming space for all people. And, you know, I, I think some of the maybe the problems of the past is having only one perspective in engineering. Right. And it, there's a valuable perspective that certainly women, but people of different colors bring to it, too. Like This is really important to maintain a space that's safe and accessible for everybody. Right. Oh, indeed. That, that's that's our mission. So thank well, you. So great talking to you guys. Th- thank you for being here at the Louisville Maker Fair. We're live on Forward Radio. Brian. You want to give one uh, encouragement why people might want to come down here? You know, this is a place where people can think about the thinking you're already doing. This is a place where you can think about new projects. You can think about old projects in a different way. There are so many people down here who are ready to talk to you and engage with you about whatever it is that, you know, inspires you. And they want to make connections between their projects and your interests. Everything's very welcoming. I mean, it's a carpeted floor. It's an air-conditioned room, beautifully lit. You can get a chance to see some of the renovations around Brook Street. If it's been, you know, a few years since you were down on Belknap campus, you will be absolutely blown away by the new buildings and the new construction. So please come down and give it a shot. Wonderful folks, wonderful engagement, um, and uh, a really, really interesting and inspiring meeting. Um, We've got at least 20... What do you say, Justin? 20, 25 different vendors here in this thing? Well, vendors, you know, it's the wrong word because they're not selling anything. It is the right, right? thing. Yeah, it's the, uh, what, what do we call it? Philanthropists. They're, they're just giving it away. <laughs> they're giving away the ideas and the inspiration and the stories. I'm so excited. Welcome. Hi, what's your name? Hello, it's Janan. It's good to see you again. And what's your name? Lena. Hi, Lena. It's great to have you guys here at the Louisville Maker Fair. What are you doing at your booth? We're here talking about Salam Storytime. It's a children's podcast that reads diverse books about kids around the world for kids around the world. Yay! Wow. And, and we hope to get them on Forward Radio, too. We need them on Forward Radio. <laughs> we've, we've met before. We've yes. met Justin, and I don't think we may have emailed each other before. Okay. Yeah, so thank you. We're really excited to be here at the Maker Fair. Lena, she's six. And she's being a little shy, but let's see. What do you want to talk about? What have people come and asked about? The books. Yeah, so we, we brought all of the books that have been on the podcast so far. Okay, yeah. And we actually have two books that are about, it's all about, all of our books are about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And two of them relate to being hard of hearing or having being deaf. Nice. And so having a podcast yeah. is difficult. So what yeah. we actually did is we got permission for any of our books that are related to you need to have the auditory component and you can't we got permission to actually make that into a youtube video so we have it's it's inclusive it's an inclusive podcast but the majority of our content is on spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts just like forward radio (laughs) yes so thank you so much yes we're excited to have you come on the station eventually uh and do this important work about diverse stories for children yes Uh, we were just talking about diversity in the engineering field but diversity in what kids are exposed to when they're young and reading and falling in love with things right that's so important it is really important for for children to see themselves or hear about themselves in books Yes. And again, it sounds silly that we're talking about a podcast, but you can still describe 
uh, and learn about cultures, learn about individuals, learn about the diversity. And the beautiful thing is these stories that are in front of us that we have here today are from all over the world. But the stories, essentially the core messages are the same. Yeah. The stories, no matter where they come from, children yeah. want and need belonging, inclusion. Books can be windows or mirrors to children. A window to see an, another world they are not familiar with, like a fantasy book, maybe Harry Potter. Right. But a diverse book could be a window for someone else that is not used to seeing something different. And then a mirror, a book is a mirror when you see yourself in it. So some of these books are mirrors for certain children. And uh, we need more of those. So that's what we're here to do. And we're, it's a community effort, just like what you all do. We're here to actually recruit people to come to our information sessions. We hold them at Northeast Public Library oh. because we're trying to actually get on forward radio, yeah, yeah. but we need to have longer episodes. We right. need people to support us, yep. um, helping edit these long... Yes. This, it takes a lot of work to edit, and so. it's created by a six-year-old. A, <laughs> a six-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old, they don't do much editing, so no, uh, editing. They're, they're good at telling the stories but I think we um, so that's why we came here and we've had a lot of people sign up with interest cool. um, hopefully if anyone's interested we're, we're if you're interested check us out Salam Storytime it's on Instagram you can Google it it's anywhere you listen to podcasts Salam S-A-L-A-A-M Storytime and uh, <laughs> we, we really appreciate you stopping by our booth awesome how many stories uh, do you have so far so far there are 16 stories and uh, so that's two seasons we're in season two and each story is about between three and eight minutes long. Oh, so okay. these are children's picture books, right. which is really interesting because picture books are not really auditory. <laughs> but books on the radio. We, we, bring <laughs> it, we bring it to life by adding sound effects, actually. That's oh, how cool. we, we have sound effects. Lena, the six-year-old, helps pick them. <laughs> um, so if you, know, if you hear footsteps or... I was hoping you'd say she makes them. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we make them, yeah. Sometimes we make the sound effects. If there's a child crying, maybe her younger sister will do that for us. But we have plenty of that. But yeah, um, it's, there's a way to bring stories to life through radio, through sure. voice. And our, our dream and goal is to actually have them one day have conversations with the authors. Because a lot of these books in front of us are also self-published. Because yes. the mainstream, it's harder to get your diverse book right, published, right. actually. So a lot of people say, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to self-publish it. And it's easier than ever to do that. And the irony is that it's easy to self-publish, but it's hard to get people to buy to yeah, and to yeah, read it. Yeah. So what Salam Storytime, a place we have also, is to help these self-published authors, give them a platform, say that, hey, we're going to do this. It's all nonprofit. This is from our heart. We enjoy the stories. They're picked because the children like them. Yeah. Um, our committee is children. Yeah. Um, and, and once the stories are approved by the children board, yeah. we, we start reading and we start getting to work thinking about what sound effects to add, who's going to be the right character for each story, who do we know, who do we need. So, yeah, we need a lot of boys because I have three daughters. We need more boy <laughs> voices. Um, and, you know, again, really fun stuff. So, thank yeah. you. Yeah, that is fun cool. stuff. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice yes, to meet you. Yes, yes. Come on back to Forward Radio anytime. Come on, check their, their booth if you want to get exposed to things like children's stories on diversity. This is the place. The Maker Fair's got it all. Aquaponics is in the house. I love I love how there's like cheek to jowl crazy things like Salam Storytime and Aquaponics. Uh, <laughs> you know, you never know what you're going to get. You take, take the next step. Um, we, we at UofL are kind of experimenting with aquaponics, aren't we? We are. We are. We have a tank. Uh, we have uh, all of our pumps. We have uh, fish waiting for us to do it. I just need to get the labor to set it all up. We've been we've been looking for that labor actually for about a year, but uh, but we are. We have the, we have everything we need except 
putting it all together, and maybe some of the people we need are right here at this booth. Who knows? So uh, maybe we could talk to some of these folks working at the aquaponics booth. Can you tell us about aquaponics? So it's a different way of farming, how we use um, the waste product of fish to fertilize plants. And it's a better way of farming for the future. And have you built one of these aquaponics systems? Yes, I have. Where is it? It's at home. At home? Oh my god, you can do this in your garage? Yeah, you can also <laughs> do it indoors. Right, yeah. What kind of fish do you grow? I used a fancy goldfish for my project. Cool. And people do this also to grow fish to eat, right? Yeah. People use tilapia to grow plants, mainly. What's your name and how did you get into this? My name is Amina Albarqawi and I was researching and I found that normal growing is not very sustainable for the planet and I wanted to find a different way to grow plants. Very cool. So what is the input that goes into an aquaponic system that, to get the whole thing started? So first you want to start with a tank and you want fish to grow in it for a while and after they start producing the waste product then you can use the waste products to start fertilizing your plants. Yeah, so the waste is food for something else in this mini ecosystem that you're recreating, right? And the plants also clean the water so that goes back to the fish and it's like a, like a system. Awesome. So you don't have your tanks here, but there there are great displays of how you can do this in your own home, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And you can make it out of waste products from the industry, right? Like, Brian, you've got some tanks you, you got from local industry? Yeah, yeah. Brown Foreman has given us some tanks, for example. We've had some others from food service industry. Yeah, yeah, we use them. So come on by Maker Fair today, and you can learn a little bit about aquaponics, right? Great talking to you. Thank you. This is awesome. I love the diversity of things and ideas here at the Louisville Maker Fair uh, on the U of L campus, Student Activities Center at the Clock Tower. There are both indoor and outdoor booths. We're doing a special live broadcast today here on Forward Radio. My name is Justin Mogg, and I've got Brian Barnes with me as we rove about the hall talking to the many different kinds of makers. It is so fun to see the different kinds of people who are involved. You know, we were talking to folks who are interested in, you know, clocks from the 1800s, uh, and now we're talking to youth about aquaponics and kids' books and diversity. That's the kind of stuff you get here at the Louisville Maker Fair. It's so exciting to have it back after three years away. This is a super fun, family-friendly event that is free and open to the public. Uh, It is a wonderful day to be out learning about how to make stuff. Uh, The University of Louisville, of course, does things with surgery that no one else is doing, including astro-surgery. That is surgery in space, Brian. I think if I was going to have surgery, I'd want to be on the Earth, but we're all in space in a way, right? We're all just hurling through the universe. Yeah, yeah, the marble. The marble is just spinning out in space. It might be nice if we had surgery in space. Maybe they could float the instruments, and then you could just kind of pull them out of the air, for example. Maybe there'd be some benefit to not having gravity pulling all the tissues down to the table. I don't know. Maybe we should ask somebody who knows something about this. Surgery in space! Yeah. yeah, that's what we need. I think so. I see a demonstration of like one of these in blood infuser packets that you hang. Yeah. Like how do liquids behave in no gravity environments? This is crazy to me. Uh, th- and there's a demo. There's a video showing you exactly how. It like jello. <laughs> oh, really? It acts like jello because the only thing acting on it is surface tension. There's no hydrostatic pressure at all. Oh, wow. So it climbs up a wall just like Spider-Man. Wow. Anything it sticks to, it climbs up. And the important thing about filling this dome up is the shape of the dome really influences how it fills up in zero gravity. Because if you fill that thing up, and obviously we want to cover a wound, we don't want a big bolus of air right in the middle, right? Right. So the shape of the dome is very important. Huh. 
So how do you research these kinds of things here on Earth? That are applied that's, up that's, in the. That's uh, the problem is you can't. You can simulate it in the computer, right? Oh, okay. But you can't perform the experiment, right? You can't do a zero gravity experiment anywhere but in zero gravity. And they don't call that where we went is microgravity, right? Because Virgin Galactic, you know, sends these ships up there, and they don't promise zero gravity. They promise <laughs> microgravity, like right? the moon, like the moon, microgravity. Okay. So. So this experiment went up on Virgin Galactic's uh, Spaceship 2 last May. Wow. And what we're interested in, in, in is thinking about how to do surgery in zero gravity. So specifically, if you have a wound, that wound needs to be contained. So the, if, especially if you have an arterial wound where you have blood going everywhere, contaminates oh everything. Gosh. You want to be able to, to contain the wound and then also provide access. So we have these little uh, hemispherical domes called surgical immersion domes. Basically, you can peel the bottom off, stick it over the wound, and you're basically doing endoscopic surgery outside the body. So the, the fluid does two things. One is it, bring, it clears the visual field, so it brings the bleeding away. And then you can elevate the blood in the, or the water in the dome with pressure. So it's like putting your thumb on the wound, right? And then we have ports in the side so you can stick your instruments through the walls and actually do suturing, stapling, you know, that kind of thing. So that's, so we call, I call that a space band-aid, that thing that looks like a little hemispherical shell. And we have a demo, so we were invited to the uh, Smithsonian in April to do the ACC Challenge, which is where all of the ACC schools sent uh, art, performance art, you know, traditional arts, um, lighting, and then engineering projects okay. and things like that. So we made this little demo for the kids. So with one of the first versions of the dome, so they can fill it and empty it. You know, just in, in one G, it's hard enough. Right? So part of this is the fact that that was fully automated. So nobody turned a switch or anything like that. We got 24 volts from the from the spacecraft. We had to figure out when it got to zero gravity and trigger to run its, it had about 35 steps in the sequence, right? If it doesn't trigger correctly, it comes back down, nothing's happened, okay. it doesn't turn itself on, then you're like sunk because there's no do-overs, <laughs> right? So long before we set this up, we went to NASA Glenn where they have a 2.2 second drop tower. It was basically oh. a seven-story building wow. that used to have a distillation column in it and they used it to make jet fuel. They would take regular gas, distill it, right to, to get wow. high octane jet fuel now that they make jet fuel at the refineries they decommission that and they turn it into a drop tower so there's a big giant electromagnet in the ceiling Whoa. right you actually stand on the fourth floor and load your stuff in this carriage it wheels up to Whoa. the top they turn on the electromagnet everybody clears and then they let it go and it drops seven stories into a giant airbag huh. so we put a little box together with our controller and the algorithm that, that was, we were designing to trigger zero gravity to make sure that it didn't prematurely So trigger. you had two seconds to do your experiment. 2.2 seconds. 2.2 seconds. Just, just to trigger. So that we were just testing to make sure that it triggered at the right time, not prematurely or whatever. Because the problem with that rocket is, you know, the rocket is attached to an aircraft that's going up 55,000 feet. Sure. The rocket drops from the belly of that and it ignites, goes into space inverted, and it's zero gravity burns all of its microgravity. Right, burns all of its fuel, and then it's like a hang glider. Yeah. Right. So the fact that it's a rocket, we reached 4.7 Gs, Mach three and a half, when that thing went off. Right. So you need to make sure that when it's in free fall, right, 
that when it drops from the plane, it's not going to say, hey, I'm in zero gravity and yeah. trigger. Yeah. Right? You, so we had little windows of confirmation to make sure wow. that we were actually in zero gravity before wow. the thing turned on. And it, and it worked absolutely perfectly. Congratulations. And we found wow. out you know, how much volume you need to add to We wanted to get to 100 millimeters of mercury, which is about the pressure you need to overcome any ble bleeding. Okay. Right? And we found out that we need a lot more fluid, right, than we use on 1G. 1G, we did all those tests, right? But in zero gravity, you need a lot more fluid to get the same levels of pressure. So we learned a lot, injected a little fake blood. Yeah. We've got a little utensil there we call the uh, multifunctional surgical wand. So most, uh, when you think about surgery, there's all kind of people involved. You might have a utensil for suction, a utensil for irrigation, a utensil for cautery. We're trying to combine all of those into one unit. So that little white handle device does uh, suction, irrigation, illumination, and Sienna here is working on her master's degree. Really? Developing a, a, putting a cautery tip in the end of that. So we can oh. do old fashioned thermal cautery in a single device. And the cool thing about that shaft that you see right there, that's 3D printed out of stainless steel. Okay. Right? Yeah. So we can make custom instruments with this new 3D printing technology. And what you see in the front are those surgical handles the sure. idea is that, you know, if you think you're going to provide surgery and you're going to need a scalpel, yeah. well, you don't want to send a scalpel up there because you may never need it. So send a bunch of packs of the of the blades and then have a 3D printer oh. and 3D print the handle, right? Hook the scalpel on it, use it. Then you can sterilize the, the scalpel and then melt the 3D printer handle and reuse it. You there know? you so go. Multi-use. All of these, you know, this new technology. And we're certainly not the only group that NASA's um, funding to develop surgical capacity in space, right? It's, it's a big, you know, it's been on their minds for, you know, 10 or 10 plus years. So I need to ask, has surgery ever been performed in space? Uh, mi minor. Uh, minor, sir, right okay. on, But so the thing about like the ISS, right? Yeah. They can get somebody down to the ground in about an hour and a half, right? They have emergency capsules. So you probably you would know. just stabilize. So this is, you know, everybody's like, what about telehealth? You know, what about, you know, guiding somebody through surgery, you know, over the radio? All of these astronauts are going to have to have some surgical capacity, talent, training, because the further you get away from Earth, the longer the latency is yeah. in communication, right? You're not yeah. going to have a direct line to call yeah. a bunch of doctors. Everybody's going to have to have a little training. And something's going to happen, you know? They're going to accidentally nick and get a oh, yeah. cut and eat stitches and have an appendicitis. Oh, or man. Even maybe an impacted tooth. Or so you don't know what's going to happen, right? So that's why we're thinking about Blaster training. injury. There we go. Blasters. Blasters. Sure. You never know, right? Hey, don't have to worry. If we see stormtroopers, we're safe. <laughs> All right. So last question. Yeah. People, are, Listeners are probably wondering, I'm never getting into space. Would there be any kind of on-earth applications for the kinds of things you're developing, like this cauterizing tool, right? So, like the multifunction surgical device, the longer you're in during surgery, more times you switch instruments, it only increases, like, clinical uh, surgical-related inf infections. So with this, we can minimize those, or people who have, have adverse reaction to anesthesia, right. the least amount of time under anesthesia, the better. So right. especially with that tool, you could use it for that, or even in, like, more rural medicine applications where maybe they don't have the space or they don't have a way to get all these instruments all the time. You just have this one that they can keep reusing and use it for multiple different things. So, so cool. It's great meeting you all. Thanks for telling us Thanks all about surgery and space. And that concludes the second part of our special Truth to Power highlights from some of our interviews and conversations with folks at the third ever Louisville Makeover Fair held back on September 10th at the University of Louisville. And you can learn more at louisville.makerfair.com. And that's fair with an E.
That's all the time we have for today on Truth to Power. We'll be back in your ears again in one week's time. Be well.